This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss solitary confinement with Gene Casella, the lead editor of a recently published work by the New Press, Hell is a Very Small Place, Voices from Solitary Confinement. Gene, welcome to the program. David, thank you so much for having me today. Gene's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, U.S. prisons hold over 2 million people, more than the population of Manhattan, or more than the total number of prisoners in Russia and China, the countries with the second and third highest prison populations. Along with North Korea, the U.S. has the world's highest incarceration rate. The U.S. has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners. Although no one knows the exact number, on any given day, between 80,000 and 120,000 men, women, and children are held in restricted housing, quote-unquote, or in a special or secure housing unit, the acronym of which is SHU, S-H-U. Of those entering solitary confinement, one-third to one-half suffer serious mental illness, and at least an equal number of those that are placed in solitary confinement, particularly for years or multiple decades, frequently suffer severe psychological harm. Solitary confinement is, to some extent, an accident of history. In the late 18th century, isolating individuals was thought to allow for more penitent prisoners, thus the term penitentiary. However, by the first half of the 19th century, the practice became viewed as cruel. Tocqueville, in 1833, wrote the practice was, quote-unquote, beyond the strength of men. It destroys the criminal without intermission and without pity. It does not reform. It kills. After visiting Eastern State Penitentiary in 1842, Charles Dickens wrote, very few men are capable of estimating the immense amount of torture and agony which this dreadful punishment inflicts upon the sufferers. Dickens referred to those in solitary as, quote-unquote, buried alive. In 1890, the Supreme Court in Remedley recognized the practice caused psychiatric harm, stating prisoners became violently insane, quote-unquote. While prisoners remained placed in solitary for short periods, long-term isolation was rare. However, in 1983, after two prison guards were killed at the U.S. Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, the entire prison went into lockdown. Lockdown remained in place, and the modern practice of solitary confinement and what we know today as supermax prisons were born. So with that as a longer introduction, Gene, let me begin by asking, I noted the estimated number of those held in solitary confinement. What reasons explain solitary confinement's use? Well, it depends very much on who you talk to, and, and thank you very much for that excellent uh, overview. Um, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, if you if you speak with uh, the prison establishment, they're going to tell you that it's a, a management tool and that it's necessary to uh, maintain and control and what they call the safety and security of their prisons. Um, you know, personally, I think it's it's a just the the ultimate expression of the of the punitive paradigm that really um, 
surrounds um, the entire criminal justice system in this country and, and particularly uh, our prison system. So, you know, if you misbehave in society, you get sent to prison. If you misbehave in prison, you get sent to solitary. And, you know, at, at each step, there's, for, there's a further removal from, from human society. And without a lot of thought as to whether that is the best way to produce, you know, less antisocial behavior in people or to get people to become more, you know, productive members of the community. Um, uh, if you speak with people who are in solitary, they'll tell you that it's a highly capricious um, and, and often very personal um, system of, of retribution by uh, prison officers, uh, corrections officers, against people that they don't like or who bother them, or you know, for the for the more sincere ones who they just don't know how to deal with. Um, you mentioned the very high rates of people with mental illness um, in the prison system, and particularly in solitary. There are a lot of people who are just acting out on on untreated serious mental illness, and who end up in solitary as a result. The um Several of the essays, uh, the authors noted how, and used the word capricious, uh, how arbitrary, and that it's largely, in many instances, uh, just uh, simply a matter of a prison guard deciding that uh, a particular prisoner uh, is bothering them for, as one author noted, having too many pencils, eating the core of their apple, I mean, just for trivial reasons. Uh, they're confined to solitary. Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about solitary is that it's reserved for, you know, the Hannibal lectors of, of you know, the prison system. And that, and also that it's, that people think that it's a sentence that's, that's handed down by a judge or a judge and jury. Um, nobody gets sentenced to solitary as a result of their trial. Um, they go to prison, and there they're either initially classified as someone who might be dangerous, um, possibly based on their gang membership or, and you know, the the nature of their crime. So they're classified by uh, prison officials, or else they're placed there for so-called disciplinary reasons, and um, that is completely based on the say-so of rank-and-file prison guards, um, and. Uh, they they are entitled in most states to some sort of a disciplinary hearing, but the prison staff serve as the prosecutors, the judges, the juries, the witnesses, and and there is no defense counsel. So um, this this is an internal um, an internal function of of our prison systems, and and as such, just completely um, subject to. Uh, you know, further injustice. Um, as one example, there was recently an expose, very recently, in the last uh, week or so, in the New York Times, where they looked at the um, the disciplinary records in the New York State prisons. Um, and in New York, we have, um, you know, a very high population of people of color in the prisons, but the prisons are located not in New York City, but in upstate New York. Um, most of the guards are white, and they found this tremendous discrepancy in um, in who gets sent to solitary. Um, 
more disproportionate still than than the number of people of color in the prison system in general, the number of people of color in solitary. So obviously something is going on there. Right. Uh, there is also made note that there is um, there are no ombudspersons. There is no independent monitoring bodies. Uh, it's it's uh, subjective by prison officials. Let me ask right. you: Can you describe conditions under solitary confinement? No, they vary slightly from prison to prison and from state to state, but basically you're talking about a cell that measures on average six feet by nine feet. Um, that means that, you know, a tall person can stretch out their arms and, and touch both both walls. Um, and they do not have bars on the doors for the most part. They have uh, solid steel cell doors. Um, so all four walls are solid. They might have a tiny window in, on one side. They might not have any window at all. Um, in that solid cell door, there's a feeding slot. Um, that, that's what they're called, or a port. Um, and, and through that slot uh, takes place the, uh, the prisoner, all of the prisoners' contact with the outside world. Um, which consists, of, of course, of prison staff. So they, they receive their meals through that slot. Um, we have one um, person in, in, our, in, our, in the book who um, talked about being a diabetic, and in order to receive his insulin injections, he had to extend his arm through the feeding slot so that the nurse could inject, you know, put the injection into his arm. Um, you know, a lot of if they receive any psychiatric treatment at all, it consists of somebody coming up and, and crouching down and talking to them through their feeding slot um, or or else just shouting, hey, are you doing okay today? As if, as if anyone who wasn't would, would say so in front of, you know, the whole tier of guards and other prisoners. So, um, so we're talking about a system that was designed for extreme isolation, um, you know, beyond what would be necessary even for, you know, anybody short of Hannibal Lecter for the purposes of safety and security, which is why, you know, I think solitary is largely a, a really punitive and even sadistic practice. So let's go to the effects of extreme isolation. There are two chapters in this volume by a Harvard psychiatrist, Stuart Grossian, and one by a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychological Association, Terry Coopers. So they have two contributing chapters to the volume. How do they describe solitary confinement psychiatric effects? Yeah, I mean, I want to begin by saying that these two guys are really like heroes of the whole story of, um, you know, this sort of birth of an anti an anti-solitary movement, because before anyone was talking about it, you know, during this dark period in the, you know, from the 80s through the early 2000s when solitary was just growing and growing and no one was saying anything about it, they were like, wait, this this can't be, you know, this can't be okay. Um, human beings were not meant to live in this kind of extreme isolation. And they were, you know, insisting on um, going in and, and, and um, you know, talking to these guys and, and trying to begin to measure the effects of this this massive experiment in human isolation, which was happening like under our noses. Um, so uh, Stuart Grassian 
actually found um, such a consistent um, series of symptoms that he calls it SHU syndrome. As you said before, SHU stands for um, either security housing unit or special housing unit, which is the prevalent euphemism for a solitary confinement unit. Um, so he calls it SHU syndrome, and it it has a variety of symptoms that, that range from um, extreme anxiety and depression to um, visual and auditory hallucinations, and often leading to self-harm, you know, self-injurious behavior. Um, practices like cutting are, are limited almost entirely to um, teenage girls and men in solitary confinement. You know, this kind of self-mutilation, which often takes really extreme forms. I mean, there's a guy we correspond with who's, you know, who's bitten off his pinkies and just horrible stuff. And um, and also the, the rates of suicide in solitary confinement are extremely high, much, much, much higher than in the rest of the um, the rest of the prison system. Um, about 5% nationally, we, we believe about 5% uh, of all individuals in prison are held in solitary confinement, yet 50% of prison suicides take place in solitary. Thank you. Just uh, not to be morbid here, but uh, I'll just add to complete the list, hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity to stimuli, perceptual distortions, revenge fantasies, rage, irrational anger, lack of impulse control, depression, appetite loss, withdrawal, blunting of effect and apathy, uh, lowering levels of brain functioning. Uh, some of the self-harm is pretty disturbing in detail. And then relative suicide, I'll just note, uh, as severe as biting through the veins of one's wrist and jumping headfirst off a bunk. So just so we're clear what these effects are. And per your comment, um, uh, not surprisingly, uh, higher recidivism rates and no decrease in violence in prisons, which this is purportedly intended to uh, produce. In sum, would you say, bottom line, the solitary confinement is torture? Well, um, again, it depends on who you talk to, but um, I've never talked to anyone who spent time in solitary confinement for more than a few days. Um, who did not believe it was torture. Um, I've never, I've never spoken to a mental health professional um, who's not currently in the pay of the prison system, um, who's worked with these people who did not believe it was torture. And now, um, you know, we have, uh, and we've had a very important advocate um, in the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Juan Mendez actually just um, retired from his post after six years in that position. That is the, the UN's primary um, torture investigator. And he turned his attention, he's actually an Argentinian who spent a short period in solitary himself um, under the military regime in Argentina when he was a young man. He's very interested in the subject. And he studied um, U.S. prisons, and he concluded that uh, solitary confinement beyond 14 days often rises to the level of torture, and that for particularly vulnerable populations like um, children, juveniles, 
and people with underlying mental illness that any time in solitary consists of torture. So that that's that that's the expert opinion on the subject. Thank you. The volume in uh, most of the volume contains sixteen essays uh, by and interviews with solitary confinement inmates under the chapter titles Enduring, Resisting, and Surviving. Implicitly or explicitly, their comments are largely about how they've worked or are working to keep their sanity. For example, one individual discusses fishing from his cell. What's fishing and what are other activities inmates use uh, to try to remain sane? I mean, you're absolutely right that the life in solitary confinement is about a struggle to maintain sanity. And when we were compiling this book, um, one of the really sad things that we were aware of was that, at best, the book could only represent a small minority of the people in solitary because, first of all, quite a few of them are not literate. Um, Another, as we discussed, huge percentage of them are, are too mentally ill to be able to communicate. And even among the remaining people, you know, some of them have, have sort of lost that struggle with sanity um, or, you know, with hope. That's the other thing that, you know, people are always struggling to maintain um, is some sense of hope that would even make them want to reach out and, and you know, write about their experiences. But um, back to your question, fishing is one of the desperate measures that people take um to uh, maintain some kind of contact with other human beings, and in a way, it's a you know it's a, it's a very disturbing book, but it's also this kind of like homage to you know the the human um, thirst for connection with other human beings. Perseverance, um, yes, yeah. So um, so fishing is um, a way of communicating with people in the adjoining cells um, by ripping a long strip off your bed sheet. Um, some people rip three strips and braid them so that they're stronger. And then um, you attach something flat but heavy to the end, like a little packet of shampoo that they give you, um, and you tie that around the end, and then you under the, in the, you know, half inch under the cell door, you shoot out a line and then you hope that somebody is going to be looking, you know, peering under their cell door or through their little window in their cell door and, and see your line and they'll shoot out a line and, the, and then you'll try to connect. They'll try to cross lines. And once that connection can be made, then you can start passing notes back and forth. Um, you can share, you know, a letter. You can share, um, if you're lucky enough to be allowed to have magazine subscriptions, and you're also lucky enough to have someone send you one, um, you can share an article, tear an article out of a magazine and share that, and then send notes discussing it. I mean, it's just some way to have some kind of human contact with other people. Um, you know, the other ways that people communicate are um, shouting through air vents. Um, you know, they do, people do usually get out of their cells for um, uh, a few hours a week. Um, they're supposed to get out at least an hour a day. They don't always, they exercise in um, what they call dog runs, which are cages, which can have either concrete walls or, you know, chicken wire fences. 
and they might be able to shout or throw a note over the wall to someone in the adjoining dog run. But again, you know, the the level of desperation for human contact is, is, is really incredible. And there was some discussion about uh, sign language. They learn or teach themselves yeah, signing. Yes. Right. right, so they can um, look out their little window and hopefully some catch the eye of someone across the hall. But, but, you know, the system is, again, so punitive and vicious that in some prisons the cells are built so that they're not directly across from one another so that you actually look out your little window and you can't see anyone else. You know, they'll, like, uh, place them on on opposite hallways so that you can't actually see anyone else. Mm-hmm. Let's ask about, let me ask about uh, the private sector and all this, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a lead to um, what President Obama has attempted to do. But there's some mention of prison officials' behavior throughout uh, the 16 essays, in interviews. For example, Shaka Senghor notes he spent seven years in solitary, uh, that to most of them, the guards, quote-unquote, I represent job security. Todd Lewis Ashker, who spent more than 25 years in solitary, states guards intentionally had inmates fight one another, in part for entertainment and in part to use prisoner violence. He states, quote-unquote, to further the guard union's agenda, more supermax prison cells. So, as a student of this, to what extent does the private sector profit-making contribute to the practice of solitary confinement? Well, we have a couple of forces operating here in, in what you just described, and one of them is the um, the prison officers' union. And, you know, I want to pause here to actually say I, I don't think everybody, you know, I don't think only sadists sign up to be to be guard, prison guards. I think there is something about the atmosphere that, you know, brings out the worst in people and um, that there's also tremendous, you know, peer pressure to not treat um, the prisoners in a humane manner and that that's just, in, that's just intensified in the, you know, in the solitary confinement units. And one warden had actually made that admission in the book. So, yes, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so the, this is a case, unfortunately, which in the unions have been a really strong force against change. Um, in Illinois, for example, where their one supermax prison eventually was shut down under pressure and also it was tremendously expensive as, as, uh, as all uh, supermax prisons are. Um, and the guards team fought that tooth and nail. Um, here in New York, in New York City, where we have um, our jail on Rikers Island, um, has decided to take young people out of solitary and put limits on solitary for everyone else. They're actually being sued by the guards union. The mayor is being sued by the guards union now, who's they're saying that he's putting them, he's putting them in greater danger, you know, through his uh, solitary confinement reforms. So um, to, the, to the question of, you know, the private sort of profit-making motive, um, you know, while I am an opponent of private prisons, also someone who thinks that you can't completely separate, you know, that it would be a mistake to think that public prisons are good because, you know, private prisons are worse. And also that even within public prisons, you know, there are, there's so much um, privatization going on with the health care and the food and everything else so that, um, you know, it's sort of prison industrial complex is very 
uh, is very complicated. But um, actually, private prisons tend not to use uh, solitary confinement any more than the public prisons do, but primarily because they don't actually want to take the most um, serious offenders into the private prison system. Um, Private prison companies love, like, medium and minimum security prisons because they're easier and cheaper to run. Um, and they have fewer maximum security prisons. So there aren't any really clear, um, there aren't any really clear, uh, um, statistics on whether things are worse, you know, whether private prisons use solitary more than public prisons do, but I personally, I kind of doubt it. I, I think it's probably pretty consistent across the board. Okay, thank you. There are several mentions of a mass hunger strike that took place in California prisons a few years ago that fed, or led, excuse me, to a court settlement that had some effect on reducing the number of those in solitary in California. President Obama, Obama, whom I mentioned in 2015, directed Attorney General Lynch to, quote-unquote, start a review of the overuse of solitary confinement and issued an executive order banning solitary in federal prisons for juveniles. In 2015, the same year, Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court uh, in his uh, confirming uh, Davis versus IA opinion had signaled his interest in hearing a solitary confinement case uh, whereby the court might have to, he said, decide whether, quote-unquote, workable alternatives for long-term confinement exist. Uh, despite limited progress by, uh, made by these actions and others, it appears the number of those in solitary has not dwindled by much more than a few thousand We'll now have a new president and a new attorney general. Uh, how optimistic or pessimistic are you about continued progress, however incremental? And I might say, as an aside, speaking of recent news, uh, you're probably well aware Governor Chris Christie in the past two weeks just vetoed legislation that would have limited the use of solitary confinement in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, I don't know people... People like to say they're cautiously optimistic. I'm, I'm sort of cautiously pessimistic. Um, you know, I don't want to be uh, a, a, an excessive sort of naysayer, um, especially since a tremendous amount of, 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 of um, you know, really blood, sweat, and tears has gone into um, bringing about the solitary reforms that do exist, um, starting with the incredible um, sacrifices made by the men in Pelican Bay, the supermax prison in California, who organized uh, a hunger strike and brought attention to their plight. Um, that was subsequently covered by the media, and um, there was a lawsuit by the Center for Constitutional Rights. And um, we are actually seeing real change in California where guys who were in uh, the shoes for 10, 20, even 30 years are actually being transitioned out and back into general population. You know, we have this problem when we when we first let people out of solitary that we've, you know, we've created um, tens of thousands of torture victims. And we're not really treating them that way. You know, we're not really admitting that that's what they are. So whether they're getting out of solitary back to general population or if they're being released directly onto the streets, they, they, they really need help and treatment, and, and that's, that's not always happening. But that's no reason to slow down the removal of people from solitary. 
um, I think that, you know, there is this momentum now that was totally non-existent five years ago. And, and that, you know, that's tremendous for someone who then spends all their time tracking this issue. Um, you know, that I, I don't want to belittle at all the, the significance of that. There are states where, um, such as Colorado, that have removed the majority of people from solitary. There are states that are trying to develop innovative programs that slowly transition people who may have been in solitary for years back into general population. There's leadership happening at the state level. There's grassroots activism. There are groups like the ACLU, you know, tremendously powerful groups who have taken up this issue big time. Um, and there are, you know, there there is real change happening. I think that probably the, the reduction in um, the number of people in solitary is more than is no more than um, ten or fifteen percent um, as a result of all this activism. And had we not just had the personal presidential election that we had, I would think that that pace of change would be accelerating because we did see leadership um, in his last year from the Obama administration um, announcing solitary confinement. Um, instituting a certain number of changes in the federal prison system, which is, you know, what he can directly affect by executive order. And, um, you know, that could have become a model for the states to continue further reforms as well. Um, of course, I have no confidence in any of the federal level stuff continuing now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have this a law and order president, and even more to the point, we have Jeff Sessions running the Department of Justice, the Department of Justice had, um, under Obama, had actually brought some um, cases against the Civil Rights Division, had brought some cases against um, state prison systems for their treatment of the mentally ill, which included placing them in solitary. And, you know, we, we really saw some, some leadership from that Department of Justice. That clearly is going to end, um, unless, unless it manages flying under the radar for another year or two. Um, eventually, you know, it's going to end. So we're going to have to really look to the states and even the local jail systems. And, you know, that's people who care about this issue. Um, you know, there's still, there's still, um, there's still work that can be done, um, at the state and local level, um, in spite of, you know, who's in the White House. So really encourage people to turn their attention there. You did have a piece on the president-elect and uh, Sessions in mm-hmm. your, uh, on your website, Solitary Watch. So as a going-out question, you co-direct uh, a group called Solitary Watch. Uh, can you pre- briefly explain uh, your organization's mission or uh, your work uh, through the organization? Yeah, um, Solitary Watch was founded seven years ago at a time when it was just really no one was talking about this issue. And um, myself and my co-director, James Ridgway, our background is as, as, as journalists. Uh, I was an editor. He's a longtime journalist, professor journalist. And we thought that the best thing we could do was really just start to try to publicize this issue and um, you know put it somehow on the public agenda. I mean, we talked about it as the biggest domestic human rights crisis that no one had ever heard of. Um, so so our goal, 
then as it, as it remains now is to just, you know, push this onto the agenda of, of, of advocacy groups, of policymakers, and, and of the public in general. Um, so we call ourselves a watchdog group, and we investigate and write about and disseminate information about solitary confinement. Okay, Jane, thank you. We're at our time boundary. I appreciate this discussion. Uh, again, a very important work. Hell is a very small place. Voices from Solitary Confinement. So I wish you all the best in, in your work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I, I hope everyone will, ta- will take a look at solitarywatch.com. You can find out more about our book there and, and also find out more about Solitary Confinement. Thank you very much, David, for this time. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.